Hello and welcome to yet another very special episode of The Paranormal Sun, coming to you live from Tower Studios. As always, I'm JT, and I'll be your tour guide as we explore the unexplained. Well, folks, I'll tell you what, this is getting to be a habit. Every day, at least one episode, and uh, today, this is the second one that I've done. All thanks to the monolith story, the story that just keeps on giving. It's something else. Actually, this morning when I finished the last episode, Monolith Mania, I was already past a, a few articles for follow-ups. So, yeah, it's something else, folks. I mean, it just keeps going and going and going. So, yeah, I've, I've got a few more articles here to read you. Now, my friends, Dave, Dave's uh, from over at the old 77. Dave sent me one of these, and uh, so I really appreciate it, Dave. And longtime listener and one of the show's biggest supporters, Harry in North Carolina. Again, thank you for sharing some of these with me. So we'll, we'll get into it very quickly here, folks. Now, the first article is from the New York Times, and this is one that Dave sent me. So thanks, Dave. And this touches on the whole subject that we talked about on the last couple of episodes about who's the person who actually did this. Was it John McCracken? So this is from the New York Times. And it came out on the 27th of November, and it says, Did John McCracken make that monolith in Utah? It is a riddle wrapped in a mystery, buried in the desert. His dealer says yes. His son says maybe. His artist buddies, like Ed Rusha, say, No way the sculptor created this tall, silvery object. And there's a couple of photos here, folks. The thing about the monolith in Utah, as I say, is that it's triangular, and it's got three sides. Now, from what I see here, they're comparing it to a monolith that he created in 2011, an art piece called Fair, which was a stainless steel monolith. But I could be wrong, but looking at this, it looks like it's just one piece of stainless steel. So rather than being triangular in shape, it just looks like a flat piece of steel. At first, it sounded like a plot twist from a science fiction novel by Philip K. Dick. Hey, shout outs to the New York Times for covering over Philip K. Dick, because I've actually been talking a lot about him lately, and a few things, a few of his works. One of them I was just talking about on the recording of the tarot reading today. You folks are really going to enjoy that. And also, there's another Philip K. Dick book. I don't want to spoil it, but something I'll be covering in the future. So, hey, uh, it's again another one of those synchronicities. Philip K. Dick is not the person who keeps getting quoted in this, it's the 2001 and Stanley Kubrick. So, synchronicities. A tall, silvery slice of metal about 10 feet high with an aura of strangeness about it is spotted in the Red Rock Canyons of the Utah Desert. State employees who found it while surveying the land for bighorn sheep say they have no idea who drove the slab of metal into the rock floor. And in the days since, the riddle of what it is and how it got there has proved irresistible. I don't think it was driven into the floor, but nonetheless, I'm being pedantic. Some cheekily wondered if it was planted there by aliens. Others thought it might be a tribute to the monolith in 2001, A Space Odyssey. But the most tantalizing speculation was that it might be the work of John McCracken, a minimalist sculptor with an affinity for science fiction who died in 2011. The David Zwerner Gallery, which has exhibited the artist's work since 1997 and represents his estate, has asserted that the mystery monolith is a bona fide McCracken. Just one problem. If that is indeed the case, McCracken pulled it off without ever mentioning a word to his dealer or his friends. And for that matter, folks, as far as I'm concerned, he did it after his death. Now, most everyone in the art world is divided over whether the, the story is plausible 
or a larksome prank. The artist's son, Patrick McCracken, remains completely puzzled by the monolith. But when he heard the news, he thought back to an evening in May 2002, when his father was living in Mendenales, New Mexico, in a small adobe house overlooking a mesa. We were standing outside looking at the stars, and he said something to the effect that he would like to leave his artwork in remote places to be discovered later, he recalled in a phone interview. Did he think his father was joking? No. I thought it was something that he would do, he said. He was inspired by the idea of alien visitors leaving objects that resembled his work, or that his work resembled. This discovery of a monolith piece, that's very much in line with his artistic vision. A photographer who lives in San Francisco, the younger McCracken added, he wasn't your average sort of dad. He believed in advanced alien races that were able to visit Earth. To his mind, these aliens had been visiting Earth for a very long time, and they were not malevolent. They wanted to help humanity to get past the time of our evolution, where all we do is fight each other. McCracken, who was born in Berkeley, California, the son of a rancher, was a memorable character, a tall, rangy man with weathered features and eyes that appeared to have stared too long at the sun. His interests were decidedly galactic. An avid reader of science fiction, he believed in time travel and extraterrestrial life. He was a friend of the actor Leonard Nimoy, the pointy-eared hero of Star Trek and a collector of McCracken's work. McCracken, who died of a brain tumor at age 76, is known best for his glossy resin-covered planks, geometric sculptures that imbue the products of the humble lumberyard with the hard surface sheen of California car culture. His otherworldly passions are hardly a guarantee of the authorship of the sculpture, and it is possible the piece was created by a non-sculptor. You can narrow the pool of candidates too, at the very least. The millions of viewers enamored of 2001 A Space Odyssey, Stanley Kubrick's 1968 classic, the film, of course, features its own heroic mon monolith, a gleaming black structure that spawns evolutionary leaps. When apes encounter it and see their first straight lines and right angles, they begin using tools and undergo a transformation into intelligent beings. Ed Rusha, who is known for his text-inscribed paintings and is probably the dean of the California art scene, befriended McCracken during the years that he was living in Los Angeles. I don't think that's a John McCracken, he said of the sculpture. It's unlike him to be a trickster of someone. A monolith in the desert? It's so universal that it could be anybody. It's very sci-fi to come across something like that. I like the idea of someone having fun. The artist James Hayward, a close friend of McCracken and former assistant of his, agrees. It's a giant hoax as far as I'm concerned, Mr. Hayward said. The object in the photos I have seen is crudely made. I looked at the corners as much as I could. They are made by a machine called a brake, which bends metal. When you bend metal with a machine, the corners are not sharp and crisp. They're rounded. Compared to a classical minimalist like Donald Judd, McCracken was an anomaly, in part because he resisted machines and industrial fabrication. He preferred to make his sculptures by hand, in a spirit of patient, painstaking craftsmanship. Truth be told, the piece in Utah differs from the planks he pioneered in 1966 and continued to think about until the end of his life. They consist of rectangular boards of plywood, covered in fiberglass, painted a single color, and leaning against a wall as if a workman had rested them there while assembling, say, a platform bed. Done in a range of strong, saturated colors, including bubblegum pink, sunflower yellow, and piano key black, they lend color and independent material life. But the high polish of their surfaces makes them so reflective they appear to dissolve in front of your eyes into something that feels less like sculptural mass than pure platonic metaphor. McCracken liked to say that the planks inhabited a zone between painting and sculpture, with one end resting on the floor and the other touching the wall, a plank connects the earth beneath our feet with the higher realm of the wall, the surface on which painting and thus illusion first began.
But there was more to his career than the Planks. The monolith in Utah, a standing non-wood column, is consistent with McCracken's lesser-known sculptures in stainless steel, for which he relied on various fabricators, including Arnold A.G. We introduced him to this incredible company that works with Jeff Koons, Mr. Zwerner said of the German fabricator. Mr. Zwerner, by his own admissions, was late in discovering McCracken's work. In 1992, he was visiting the artist Mike Kelly at his home in Los Angeles when he noticed a pink-hued plinth in the living room. The dealer asked who the artist was. Mike said, you must be the world's biggest goofball. You don't know John McCracken? He's one of the greatest artists alive. So I got a real dressing down for not knowing John McCracken. In coming months, Mr. Zwerner sought out the sculptor's work and telephoned him to ask if he belonged to a gallery in New York. McCracken hesitated before replying, Gee, David, I don't know. In fact, McCracken had been represented by the prestigious Sonnabend Gallery since 1970, but apparently was feeling disconsolate over the state of his career. Although he had earned his first fame in the now-historic 1966 survey at the Jewish Museum, Primary Structures, that helped launch the minimalist movement, his initial momentum had evaporated. He signed on to Zwerner, where he had his first show in 1997, and has continued to hold his own as a respected, if idiosyncratic, minimalist. His 10th show at the gallery will open next March, and Mr. Zwerner has decided to devote it to the Planck sculptures, which he says have never been shown by themselves before. In a Zoom call on Wednesday with Mr. Zwerner and Hannah Schauwink, a partner at the gallery who worked closely with McCracken over the years, it was clear the disagreement over the authorship of the Utah monolith extends even to the gallery staff. While Miss Schauwink remains unconvinced, I really don't know anymore, she said with a sigh. Mr. Zwerner said confidently, of course the piece is by McCracken. He's come back to help us with the transition, referring to events in Washington. A few days earlier, a gallery spokesman was quoted in the press saying that the sculpture was not a McCracken, but probably a touching homage to him, done in his style and created by an unknown acolyte. Some online sleuths using Google Earth to determine when the sculpture materialized in the desert are still asserting that it was placed there around 2016, well after McCracken's death. How do you prove that a chunk of metal in the desert is in fact the work of McCracken? In matters of art authentication, gut aesthetic opinions and the power of the eye are considered relevant. Never mind that no one besides Utah public safety agents has seen the monolith in person. Well, that's obviously no longer true. A more relevant and reliable form of authentication must await the gathering of information about the sculpture's installation. It would be useful to learn who exactly transported this metal object to Utah, drilled through red rock to plant it in the ground, and perhaps laid a cement foundation beneath it. If you happen to be the person who did that, well, speak up, please. Mr. Zwerner, by his own admissions, has no idea who installed the sculpture and seems unfazed by the question. And perhaps it is not surprising that now, towards the close of this plague year, when so many people have been besieged by varying degrees of isolation and illness and the numbness spread by television news, it is soothing indeed to contemplate a beautiful apparition rising out of the desert rock, a moving affirmation of the triumph of the imagination over workaday reality. But beware, as Spock himself famously admonished, insufficient facts always invite danger. Now, folks, I'll have a link to that article in the show notes, as always. And again, thank you, Dave, in Missouri from the old 77 for sending that through. Now, I'm going to slightly alter my opinion from before. Now, when I said I didn't think it was a McCracken, folks, there is one possibility that I could have been completely wrong about, which is that this was made before his death and somebody erected it after he had passed away. So, you know, five years or so after he passed away, potentially somebody could have went and put this up in the desert. 
Now, the interesting bit to me is if that's the case, I don't know why they would have picked public land. I don't know why they wouldn't have found somewhere else where it could have stayed. And it's interesting, again, that as soon as the pressure came on, people started going to see it and everything else. Somebody went and tore it down, which is what we're going to be getting into next. So now, folks, uh, on to the next story. And this is, uh, again, about the Utah monolith. Thanks, Harry, for sending this to me. Now, this comes from Fox 13, Salt Lake City. So it's obviously the closest major city uh, with the news crew that have covered this over. So thanks for that, Harry. And again, link in the show notes, folks. And this one is titled Mystery of Utah's Disappearing Monolith Explained by Lauren Steinbrecher. Salt Lake City. A Colorado photographer said he watched the now-famous monolith in southeast Utah fall to the ground and that he knows exactly how and why it disappeared last weekend. The mystery monolith captured worldwide attention and intrigue after its discovery in a remote area southwest of Moab on a 4x4 road near the Canyonlands Needles District. How it ended up in a secret spot a half a mile off the road is still a mystery, but photographer Ross Bernards is shedding light on how it vanished and what the group who took it said to him as they hauled it away in pieces. Ross Bernards goes on adventures for his career. I'm an adventure and outdoor lifestyle photographer. That's what I do for a living, he said. So my job depends on me finding unique and cool places. The photographer, who is based in Colorado, explained that he's also a certified canyoneering guide. Bernard said he's worked with outdoor brands like Kelty, Sierra Designs, and Utah-based Ogden Made. He often finds himself in some of the most remote places in Utah and said eastern Utah is his happy place. When a middle-of-nowhere spot in his happy place found itself in the middle of an international monolith mystery last week, Bernard's decided to check it out in person. He said he wanted to go out to the monolith before it disappeared, or before the masses found it. I wanted to go out there and try light painting with my drone, Bernard said. Just a couple of days after reading an article on the metal formation, Bernard realized the coordinates were posted online. Realizing time was of the essence, he and three friends make the several-hour trek on Friday. So that should be made. Yeah, sorry for my uh, pedanticism about editing, but seems to be a lack of it when I go through these articles. They arrived after dark, and Bernard's explained they ended up with the monolith all to themselves. The four of them took pictures of the monolith in the moonlight. About an hour later, Bernard's described what he saw after he said four other visitors walked up. Two of them stand back, two of them walk forward and walk up to the monolith and start pushing on it a little bit, he recounted. And then one of them turns to my friends, who are a little bit further up the canyon next to it, where I was a little further back, and said, Hope you got your photos. After that, Bernard said the two gave the monolith a couple of big pushes and it began to lean over. That's when the rest of them came up, and all four of them pushed it over to the one side, and then pushed it back to the other side, he remembered, and it just fell straight onto the ground. Just like that, Bernard's watched the monolith that captivated and mystified people across the globe topple over. Right after it had fallen over and made a loud thud, one of them said, This is why you don't leave trash in the desert, Bernard said. He explained the group began to break the monolith down into pieces to throw in a wheelbarrow. As they were loading it up and walking away, they just said, Leave no trace, and left, he said. Bernard's explained that he and his friends camped out overnight and even cleaned up some of the rivets left behind from the fall of the monolith. Fast forward to the next morning. The message from the monolith demolishers on his mind, Bernard's would find he was hardly the only person who set out to see the strange metal sculpture in person. He took pictures that show several vehicles lined up and parked on the roadway, with more driving down towards the area. 
You could see the road from the dust just coming up, and you could just see car after car coming and going, Bernard said. I mean, we probably saw 70 or 80 different cars there. He said there were several people in each car, some with dogs wandering off leash. Bernard's talked about how he saw people walking everywhere on the land, some even hiking up the wrong canyon in search of the monolith. Not to mention the people had swarmed an area miles up a high clearance 4x4 road. Bernard's described seeing minivans and sedans trying to navigate the road. He expressed a worry that this would lead to search and rescue calls and place an undue burden on local authorities as well as the Bureau of Land Management. It made me understand exactly why these people did it, he said. One of the reasons that we didn't stop them is we all agreed with them. Bernard said he's been called out by people saying that he was part of the problem, and he said he completely understands. Bernard said that he practices the leave no trace principle and expressed his job is to visit off the beaten path places responsibly. He also explained he has a lot of experience with cross des desert navigation and four wheel driving. Still, he said he felt guilty afterwards about making the trip. After seeing the amount of people who showed up, Bernard said the monolith didn't need to be out there. Leave the art to places where art should be and let Mother Nature have her space for art, he said. And for anyone who is buying into the conspiracy theories about how and why around the mystery metal monument and its sudden disappearance, Bernard's can at least set the record straight. Aliens were not involved in any way, shape, or form in this thing. They had nothing to do with it, nor was it some secret government project. None of that had anything to do with it, Bernard said with a smile and a chuckle. It was clearly an art piece by someone. An art piece with a wild whirlwind week and now part of the desert's past. So again... Thanks for sending that through to me, Harry. I do appreciate it. Quite an interesting one. And yet again, uh, another another piece in the puzzle. Now, I've got an article I think is going to be similar that Dave sent me, but this one was uh, more recent. So I'm going to read it. And if there's parts that are already kind of pretty heavily covered, I'm going to skip over it. Now, this one is also from TheGuardian.com. And this says, Photographer confirms humans removed mysterious Utah monolith. Four men destroyed metal pillars, saying, leave no trace. Monolith had sparked in intense interest in wild theories. A mysterious monolith that baff baffled officials and adventurers when it appeared and then swiftly disappeared in the remote Utah desert was removed by four men, not aliens as many around the world might have hoped. A group of friends who were photographing the monolith captured the removal last Friday night, then shared the images on Instagram. As the men walked off with the pieces, one of them said, leave no trace. Ross Bernards told the New York Times. The monolith was discovered in Utah late last month, prompting origin theories ranging from fine art to leftovers from TV or film to even aliens. Brett Hutchings, the Utah Department of Public Safety helicopter pilot who discovered the monolith while conducting a count of bighorn sheep, had declined to reveal its location. One of the biologists spotted it. Yeah, I'll skip over that, folks, because we've already heard that a few times. Thrill seekers agreed, and within days visitors found it, just east of the Canyonlands National Park, amid mounting international attention, a copycat monolith was reported in the hills of Romania, which you heard me cover on the last show. The object's origins remain unknown. A spokesperson for gallerist David Zwerner told The Guardian it was not a work by the late artist John McCracken. Again, we won't go too far in depth with that because I just covered that over in the early article. Nick Street, a Utah public safety spokesman, said the monolith was embedded into the rock. The Bureau of Land Management said the monolith was considered private property and it would not investigate as such matters were handled by the local sheriff's office. The San Juan County Sheriff declined to investigate, jokingly uploading to its website a most wanted poster with suspects replaced by aliens, 
but the sheriff's office then reversed its decision and announced an investigation with the BLM. The men Bernard's friend photographed removing the monolith may not have been the people who installed it. Well, yeah, of course. Bernard said he was visiting the monolith with a friend shortly before 9 p.m. on Friday when he heard the men arrive. Bernard suggested the men saw the monolith, which turned out to be hollow with a plywood structure, as an eyesore, a pollutant to the landscape. This is why you don't leave trash in the desert, one of the men reportedly said. On Instagram, Bernard said he and a friend did not try to stop the men removing the monolith because they were right to take it out. Echoing Utah authorities' concerns about the environmental impact, so many visitors on such a remote location. So yeah, that's it, folks. Nevertheless, some, some real interesting little tantalizing bits in there that I hadn't heard before. So thanks, Dave. This is why I appreciate you, you listeners sending me in these different articles because I can't be everywhere, definitely. And I've been a bit, I've been stretched a bit thin as of late, and especially covering this monolith stuff. The other listeners, you should really thank Dave and Harry for taking the time to send me these. Now, the next one here is from Harry. And again, Harry, thank you for this scoop. And I got this this morning, folks, but the truth was I needed to get some sleep. And then I had some other things to do as well. So unfortunately, I couldn't go back into the studio after I just finished an episode and re-record this. This one is from WSB TV in Atlanta. And this one says, Mystery monolith reappears in Romania, then vanishes again. A mysterious metal monolith that appeared four days ago in Romania, similar to the one that appeared two weeks ago in the U.S., has vanished. So here we go again, folks. Uh, you can't make this stuff up. And that's what I was joking about with uh, Harry this morning when he sent me the link. I said, these monoliths are going to be the death of me because it, it seems like that's all I'm doing is uh, have to uh, jump in the studio and re-record monolith episodes. A metal pillar found about two weeks ago in the Utah desert generated international interest and intrigue. After internet sleuths determined its location, visitors flocked to see it. A day later, it disappeared. Who put it there, when and why, are still unclear. The Romanian structure is not so enigmatic. It appeared November 26th as a prank by a local metal worker. Now that makes sense. And Xander, uh, from the Xander and Stone show, you commented on the photo of the monolith and said that, you know, it looked like it wasn't even finished and it was a poor copy. Look, my thoughts were the same. Uh, I didn't get a chance to reply to your comment, but uh, yeah, well spotted. Uh, you know, you could see the, the burnishing marks in it that I referred to as swirls. You know, like when a kid draws swirls, I, I couldn't think of the right term. So thanks for that, Xander. The nine-foot-tall pieces of sheet metal had intentional swirls and poorly welded joints. It was removed Tuesday, but the question remains by who? An unidentified person, apparently a bad local welder, made it. Robert Eosub, a reporter for the ZR Piatra Nimt newspaper who visited the pillar, told Reuters, Now all that remains is just a small hole covered by rocky soil. The structure was placed on Batka Doami Hill, a protected archaeological area where a Dacian castle once was. Georgiana Mozu, a Piatra Nimt police spokesman, said officers are investigating the illegally installed pillar. So that's that for that article. And again, thanks for this, Harry. So that one, at least, seems to have been solved as to who did it. And again, it was probably a copycat, you know, type installation. Nonetheless, quite interesting. And it does just go to show how sometimes when these things start out, a lot of people jump on the bandwagon and start doing things like this. So again, thanks so much for that, Harry. And thank you again, Dave, from the old 77. You two, without you sending the, through those articles, I wouldn't have been able to hop on this so quickly. So thank you very much. Again, folks, links in the show notes. You can go over there and check them out. I created my own little piece of art 
for the cover art work for this episode. So I think you'll have a bit of a chuckle on that. I hope you enjoy it and I'll throw it up on Instagram and all the other social media as I get time. Again, thanks again from the bottom of my heart, Dave and Harry for your help. Xander, well spotted with the uh, the burnishing in the monolith, you know, quote unquote monolith. I hope everyone has a great rest of your week. <laughs> no offense, but hopefully I don't end up with another story in my inbox in the morning. But if I do, I made a promise to you that I would cover this thing until it was over and done with, and I will. So with that said, folks, I hope that you have a great day at work. I think most of you will be going into work when you listen to this. And aside from that, take care, be safe, and I'll talk to you soon.